Our scripture lesson is from the Gospel of John, the 8th chapter, verses 31 through 36. John 8, 31 through 36, and our subject, Truth. said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin, and the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the Son abideth ever. If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Our subject today is truth. Truth as salvation. In the modern era, beginning with the Enlightenment, humanistic man began to take the words of our text, the 32nd verse, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, and to divorce these words from the rest of the passage. They declared that truth was man's salvation. That all that a man needed to know was what is the truth about things. And then this would be the saving of men. The modern university was built upon this premise. This is behind the messianic character of modern education in every field. The belief that truth, knowledge, information, data will save man. Now, in a sense, there is a germ of truth, but not the truth these men have in mind in that belief. Truth is related to salvation. As Christians, we believe that there is an inherent and essential coherence to all reality. All things in God's universe hang together. It is all one seamless rope. When you talk about truth, you talk about God. You talk about salvation. You talk about sanctification. These are all interlocking, interdependent concepts, interdependent realities. However, the minute you deny that God is God, then you deny the coherence of reality. Then things don't hang together. Then you have no assurance, as modern man does not, that you even have a universe. It is, as many 
scholars in our era have said, probably a multiverse. Many truths, many realities, many origins. If chance is ultimate, there is then no correlation or coherence between truth and salvation. Nietzsche saw this a century before modern American thinkers. Nietzsche said, a lie can be as life-preserving and as saving than the truth, and usually more so. And so, he said, we must insist on the necessity for lies, on their saving character. Now, if God is not God, then anything goes. Then, indeed, you can no longer say that the truth shall make you free. And this is indeed what has happened to modern man. He began by trying to take the truth of God and to divorce it from God and to say, the truth about things will make us free, it will save us. I pointed out earlier that the modern university was built on this premise. It is very interesting to see how many colleges and universities all over the world have taken the Latin word veritas, truth, and used it on their seal or their emblem. Harvard, for example, has veritas on its seals. Originally, when this was made the emblem of Harvard, it was Christian. By Veritas, they meant truth. And the purpose of studying at Harvard was to know Christ better and to know all things in Christ so that whatever area of knowledge they were concerned with, they were concerned with extending the dominion of man under Christ. Gradually, however, this was secularized. It was made humanistic. And finally, almost a hundred years ago, in 1878, at a Harvard celebration, Oliver Wendell Holmes, an alumnus of Harvard, was asked to read a poem celebrating the theme of Harvard's existence, Veritas. The poem he wrote created a sensation. The title was 1643-1878, Veritas. And the poem reads, Truth. So the frontlet's older legend ran on the brief record's opening page display. Now yet those clear-eyed scholars were afraid lest the fair fruit that wrought the woe of man by far Euphrates, where our sire began his search for truth and seeking was betrayed might work new treason in their forest shape, doubling the curse that brought life's shortened span. Nurse of the future, daughter of the past, that stern phylactery best becomes thee now. Lift to the morning star thy marble brow, cast thy brave truth on every warning blast. Stretch thy white hand to the forbidden bow, and let thine earliest symbol be thy last. 
Now this is a very cryptic but a very plain spoken statement all the same. What Holmes is saying that what scripture declares was the sin of man by far Euphrates, that is in the Garden of Eden, was actually his quest for truth. And that God was against truth. And so, for man to find truth, to stretch his hand to the forbidden bow, brought on the wrath of God. But he said, now we know that this is the way to truth. The truth lies outside God. And that the great lie is God. And man's deliverance is his emancipation from God in the course proposed by Satan to Eve. A little later, he stated it a little more plainly in his poem, The Moral Bully. And by that, he means the Christian. And he proposes the new gospel, the new idea of Veritas. This is the new world's gospel. Be ye men. Your prophets are a hundred unto one of them of old who cried, Thus saith the Lord. They told of cities that should fall in heaps, but yours of mightier cities that shall rise, where yet the lonely fishers spread their nets, where hides the fox and hoots the midnight owl. The tree of knowledge in your garden grows, not single, but at every humble door. Its branches lend you their immortal food that fills you with a sense of what ye are. Look on this world of yours with opened eyes. Ye are as gods, nay, makers of your gods. Each day ye break an image in your shrine and plant a fairer image where it stood. Now Holmes very obviously was proposing Satanism as salvation. Take the course Satan proposed. Every man should eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil should be his own God and the way is there by every man's door deny God deny his world and make your own and the old prophets talked about judgment but we talk about the world populated with beautiful cities the city of man now this of course has been the theme of modern man. Truth as being anti-God. Truth to be your own God. But the universe of Oliver Wendell Holmes was still built on the hard reality of God's creation. Around him there was still God's world. In his autocrat at the breakfast table, he wrote, and I quote, It is not easy at the best for two persons talking together to make the most of each other's thoughts. There are so many of them. When John and Thomas, for instance, are talking together, it is natural enough that among the six there should be more or less confusion and misapprehension. I think I can make it plain that there are at least six personalities distinctly to be recognized as taking part in that dialogue between John and Thomas. Three Johns. One, the real John, known only to his maker. Two, John's ideal John, 
never the real one and often very unlike him. Three, Thomas's ideal John, never the real John nor John's John, but often very unlike either. Three Thomases, one of the real Thomas. Two, Thomas's ideal Thomas. Three, John's ideal Thomas. Only one of the three Johns is taxed. Only one can be weighed on a platform balance. But the other two are just as important in the conversation. Now you notice what's happening. He's beginning to sophisticate reality. There are three Johns. The real John, known only to his maker. John as he thinks of himself, and John as the other person thinks of him. Well, there is some truth to that. But of those three Johns, within a few years, one of the Johns and one of the Thomases began to disappear as people played with this idea. And it was the real John and the real Thomas that disappeared. Why? Once you abandon the God of Scripture, you abandon the world as well and reality as well because what guarantee do you have that your sense impressions are real? After all, your mind cannot see. Your mind depends upon your senses. And as they began to point out, some people are colorblind. They look out there and they don't see colors. We know that's true of some people because there are some of us who are not colorblind. But what if all of us, all men as men, have certain blindnesses so that we don't see what's out there or we project onto the world something that's purely in our mind? After all, they said, from what we know of animals and our study in the laboratory of their eyes, they don't see the world as we do. They don't seem to see colors as we do. They hear sounds that we cannot hear. So they live in a different world. And how do any of us know that the world we think we see is really out there or is the real world? Mary Baker Eddy, about the same time, concluded, and she did it on the grounds of contemporary philosophy. Now, there is no world out there. And there is no body here. There's just mind. And that's why, for Mary Baker Eddy, there is no death. Because there is no me. Body, matter, the real world is an illusion. And I am an illusion. I think I'm alive. I think I'm a person. Now, of course, all of this is logical. Very logical. If you deny God then there is no guarantee that there is any reality to our thinking or to our sense impressions. Darwin himself once remarked in his old age that he would not trust the thinking of a monkey if a monkey could express itself as to what it had to say about the world. He said, sometimes the thought comes to me that I am only a higher ape, and why should I put any confidence in anything I have thought or anything I have supposedly discovered?
total cynicism. And logically so. Because God has been dropped from the world and therefore the world disappears and truth also disappears. This is one of the problems of the modern university. It has become a relic of the past. Dr. Nisbet, perhaps the outstanding contemporary sociologist, has said that the university is a relic of the Middle Ages, that it is a medieval institution because it still posits a world created by God, which is a universe and which can be known. He therefore sees a crumbling and a disintegration of the university in the very idea of learning and of knowledge, unless man recaptures some kind of faith. And I question whether Dr. Nisbet sees that as a possibility. You see, men began by saying, we will know the truth. And the truth is outside God. And God is trying to keep Adam and all men after Adam from knowing the truth. So we're going to have the world and truth without God. But very quickly, in terms of their own thinking, the world is gone and truth is gone. By denying God, they have denied everything. This is their doing. It isn't that we have pointed out to them that this is the end result. This is their own conclusion. The Greek philosophers retained God, Plato, Aristotle, and the others. They saw that God was necessary even though they had no use for him because someone had to guarantee knowledge. As Aristotle said, analyzing the world as form and matter or ideas and matter, there has to be, he said, a first cause. Otherwise, you have infinite regrets if there, every cause has a cause or every effect has a previous effect or cause and you go back and back and back ultimately. There is no beginning. And there's no understanding things. And if you have infinite causes, there's no unity of knowledge, so you can know nothing. And so Aristotle and the others said there has to be a first cause, and we will call that first cause God, someone who started things. After that, we have no use for him, but let him start things so that knowledge has something to guarantee it. But since then, men have been unwilling to tolerate God even on those terms. And therefore, they have dropped God overboard, with the result that knowledge has disappeared, truth has disappeared. They tried to reestablish truth, and various theories of truth have been propounded to avoid God, to try to reestablish something that can be true without God. The first, of course, is the correspondence theory of truth. The correspondence theory of truth says that there is a proposition is true if there is a fact to which it corresponds, a hard reality. 
If I say it is raining and outside it is raining, that's true. But again, their own thinking has destroyed this. To us, that's true, yes. But if you deny the validity of sense impressions, if you have no God to guarantee that life is not a mockery, and that man, all men, are not governed by some tremendous type of color blindness that makes them project into the world what's in their mind, then you have no truth. Chinese philosophy centuries ago came to this conclusion, and that's why China remains stagnant. Philosophers like Mozi said that, how do I know that all of life is not like some dream? My dreams are so real. And what it guarantee is that there is any reality to anything. I see something and someone else says they saw differently. And someone else disagrees. How do we know what is real? Are not all our minds somehow diseased and the whole of mankind tainted by a diseased kind of thinking and a diseased kind of seeing so that he sees things that are not necessarily real. Thus the correspondence theory falls apart. You cannot have knowledge of a universe of unclassified, unknowable facts unless you have total knowledge of it. Now, if that sounds a little difficult to follow, let's analyze it. Knowledge alone leads to knowledge. In other words, if you have a difficult problem in trigonometry, you've got to know trigonometry to solve it. You have to have knowledge to gain knowledge. And if you begin without God and a given deposit of knowledge, you can never know anything. So the minute you dispense with God and say, I know nothing and I'm going to start from scratch, you never get anywhere. Just as you can never solve a problem in trigonometry without a knowledge of trigonometry. So if you begin with knowing nothing, you can never know anything. Knowledge opens up only to knowledge. And this is why man has to be taught. And this is why God in the beginning taught man in the Garden of Eden and then through his work and guaranteed certain principles where my, man, whereby man could know, could trust his senses, could trust his thinking, when it is governed by God. Then a second way of trying to reestablish truth was the coherence theory. That a thing must be systematic and coherent. But how do you get an idea of coherency? And if you begin by saying nothing is true, I know nothing, how do you know that coherency is necessarily valid? And the very people who have proposed this have then gone on to say about the coherence or the systematic theory of knowledge. 
To assume that there is any systematic character to reality or to truth is to presuppose God, and they're right. In order to accept their theory, they first of all have to accept God. Then the third theory of truth that has been proposed by unbelieving men in order to provide themselves with some kind of truth is the pragmatic theory. This, of course, was very powerful in the thinking of John Dewey, and it is the essence of progressive education and of the public schools and universities of our country. In terms of pragmatism, truth is what works. Well, this is what Nietzsche said. If a lie works, it's the truth. If murder works, it's the truth. This means that you cannot condemn any act in advance. There is no propositional statement of truth. A propositional statement of truth is, thou shalt not kill. You cannot say that in terms of a pragmatic theory. First you kill and see if it works and if it's profitable for you, and then you can say, well, that murder was the truth for me. First you lie, and then you say, well, that lie was or was not the truth for me. And again, reality falls apart, because this requires man first to act and then to decide whether his action is valid or not. And this is why you have in the student movement today the unthinking act. The act must precede the thought. Not until you have acted can you decide whether your act is right or wrong. The students are not stupid. They are intelligent, and they are doing exactly what they were taught to do. Everything that progressive education has taught from before World War I to the present has conditioned all of us and our generation, and we have to fight this in ourselves, to act first and then think. And the students today, being most deeply infected by that, are naturally going to resent anyone who says, think first. Think first. Does what you do represent something that is right? Is it the truth? No, you act first, and then you reflect, you analyze, you dissect what you've done because then you'll know whether it was right or not. And of course, such a position is anarchy. For us as Christians, truth is propositional because language is propositional. It communicates reality, or it is not language, it is a lie. The principal word for truth in the Old Testament comes from a verb meaning to support, to sustain. In another form, the same word means a pillar. It means made firm, fixed, morally directed aright, steadfast, stable. 
very important to the biblical meaning of truth is the moral direction. Now remember we said at the beginning that in the world God made there is a coherency in all things. Everything is interrelated. Therefore, truth is not to be separated from morality, nor morality and truth from salvation. That which is true is also that which is morally directed. And that which saves man is inseparable from that which is true, and that which is moral, and that which is sanctifying. Knowledge, in other words, and truth are not neutral. They are moral. They are connected with redemption. They are aspects of God's coherent reality. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Ultimately, the truth is Jesus Christ. And therefore, as our text declares, if he continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. To the extent that man is a disciple of Christ, to the extent that he is in the word of Christ and in Christ's life, a part of his being, a member of his body, of his redeemed humanity, to that extent man is free. To that extent, man knows the truth. Man's awareness of truth, therefore, is a part and parcel of man's growth in Christ, his growth in sanctification, his growth in all things that are of God because of the coherence of reality. One of the Pharisees objected, saying, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, Ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. The greatest slavery, our Lord said, is to sin. Because it separates you from God and therefore from truth, therefore from salvation, therefore from all things. It is a blinding thing. It is a destroying thing. Therefore, you are indeed slaves. You are indeed not free. You do not know the truth. Our Lord interweaves all these things together. 
No man can be apart from God and be near the truth. If the Son therefore shall make you free, he shall be free indeed. If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank thee that in Jesus Christ thou hast made us free. Thou hast set us on the way of truth, of sanctification, of righteousness and holiness, of all things that are of thee. And we pray, our Father, that thou wouldst prosper us in this the way, that thou wouldst prosper us in this thy life, that we may abound unto thee and may bear fruit unto thee, and that we may bring all things into subjection to Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Are there any questions now, first of all, on our lesson? Yes. is a good modern uh, statement. Very good. How can I tell what I say until I say it? Yes.
whatever a man does is going to end up in total futility if it is done apart from God. Yes. And the ground will be cut on, out from under him by the logic of his own thinking. He will find he has nothing. There's a magnificent poem that speaks of this futility of everything apart from Christ. The Hound of Heaven by Francis Thompson. All things betray thee when thou betrayest me. Yes. Yes, uh, in my mythology of science I point out that what is involved, uh, what is, has evolved has to be involved. In other words, and this is why they are increasingly turning on their own thinking, some of these evolutionary thinkers and philosophers. In order to have evolution, you have to presuppose that the original atom out of which the whole universe began, or molecule, has everything in it that God has. <laughs> you see, what has involved, evolved, has to be involved, or else you have Lamarckianism, acquired characteristics. And this is why Freud turned from Darwin to Lamarck deliberately, because he realized that in terms of Darwin, you could not escape God. And while Lamarckianism was nonsense, you had to assume it. This is why Lysenko uh, in uh, Russia adopted the same thing and why Stalin backed him. Because it had to be that way or else you let the door wide open to God. Yes, but then they have to turn on their own thinking, you see, because logically they can't allow that. Yes. It's been... Uh, a good many years, over 20 years since I read it, so I couldn't tell you. Yes, uh, von Mises uh, is basically humanistic, but his problem is that he presupposes the whole world of God and the God of Scripture. And this has been pointed out to him by a Calvinistic thinker whom he knows and respects and uh, he admitted it was so and that there was a contradiction but uh, he didn't uh, do anything to correct it. Yes, his thinking does presuppose that somehow this didn't happen accidentally but he doesn't want to admit Yes, he has admitted to this man that his thinking does involves such a presupposition but he doesn't want to get involved into uh, 
the hard facts of admitting the reality and the claims of God. Well, I, I think he is deistic, vaguely deistic rather than theistic. Any other questions? If not, I have one announcement to make, that on the evening of Tuesday, September the 12th, you'll make a note of it in your calendars, the uh, Moral Advancement Branch of the Christian Freedom Foundation, which puts out Christian economics, will have a dinner meeting in uh, Orange County somewhere, at which I will be the speaker, and the general subject will be the uh, importance theologically and socially of capital punishment. So I recommend the, both the group and the meeting to you. The Christian Freedom Foundation publishes, as you know, Christian Economics, which will change its name soon to Applied Christianity and will come out in magazine format. And the indications are this will greatly increase its uh, scope and popularity. A trial run was mailed out and the response was very good and a large number of subscriptions did come in. Let us bow our heads now for the benediction. And now go in peace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, this day and always. Amen.